This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Mandy Marin is a partner at Moore Kingston Smith. They're one of the UK's leading accountants and business advisors with over 500 employees and 60 partners. Their network spans 30,000 people across 100 countries. They've been around since 1923. Mandy now runs the media business, which now has over 100 people. For a firm of accountants, we actually spend very little time talking about accounts, to my relief. Um, If you're remotely interested in anything to do with growing your services firm, value propositions, new business, M&A, recruitment of top talent, the key stages of growth for creative services firms, and also what we can learn from other recessions that we can apply now. Um, Both Adam and Eve and BBH got out of recession stronger, then you will definitely find this conversation absolutely fascinating. We go really deep into the weeds about new business. She spends a lot of time talking to clients about their value propositions and finding the right tribe of clients. She's got some really fascinating ideas on how to win new business. She says new business is really an attritional process and you need to keep delivering for your clients day in, day out. If you are remotely interested in any of that stuff, then you will find this conversation absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Mandy Merrin. Mandy Merrin is a partner at Moore Kingston Smith, working with media and marketing businesses, including content, data, advertising, PR, and digital companies, helping them build and realize value. She specializes in corporate finance and advises clients on a range of commercial and technical issues, such as developing business plans, share succession planning, and planning to sell businesses, as well as fundraising and merger and acquisition advisory. She was included in Campaign Magazine's 2018 A-List, a guide to who's who in media and advertising. Mandy has also advised on deals including the sale of Adam and Eve to DDB, the acquisition of Dare Digital by Oliver Marketing, the sale of MJ Media to Once Upon a Time. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Mandy Merrin, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Nathan, thank you very much indeed for having me. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for quite some time now. Um, You get your BSc from King's College in 1984 in chemistry because you say that you weren't very good at maths. Uh, I thought being good at maths was actually important for a career in accountancy. Well, it's a yeah, it's a great question. Of course, there is some maths uh, in accountancy, um, but not quite to the same level as physical chemistry, sure. which is what I was studying at university. Um, right. You know, I'd always been interested in um, business uh, and doing an accountancy qualifi- qualification is a good routine. And once I discovered that actually it's all really about advising clients on their business as opposed to um, doing headbanger maths, I stayed. You, you've been at Moore Kingston Smith since 1991, advising media, marketing and advertising clients on building and realising value in their businesses. Talk us through how you go from being an accountant to setting up the media arm of Moore Kingston Smith. Well, um, the primary answer is luck, actually. Um, <laughs> I was working in the media arm of um, my previous uh, practice firm of accountants, and uh, was invited by a former colleague to come and set up the um, media arm of Kingston Smith back in the day Um, and, you know, took his arm off, really, because it was a fantastic opportunity to come in and and produce something from scratch. 
And so, so talk a little bit about your roots into more Kingston Smith in, in, in the beginning. How, how did you get your start in the company? Um, well, as I say, they were setting up, uh, more Kingston Smith wanted to set up a media practice. Um, as um, Kingston Smith at the time, as it then was, uh, was a mid-tier firm of accountants um, and wanted to have a media arm, a media specialist arm. Um, so I was invited to come and do that. And at the start, there were there were basically four of us um, mm. sat around a telephone and a couple of computers um, waiting to uh, see how it went. And then we were lucky. One of the first clients, in fact, the first client that we signed up then was Bartle Bogle Hegarty, BBH Communications, as it is now. Great start. Um, mm. It was a great start. And um, once we started working with them, more followed. And so now we're... Um, We've got a hundred people based in a specialist office, all just working with uh, media and marketing services businesses. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about more Kingston Smith. You're a top fifty accountancy firm in the UK. You've been around since 1923, um, with sixty partners in more than f- um, with sixty partners and more than five hundred of those based in and around London. You've got thirty thousand people across more than a hundred countries globally uh the media business as you said is now 100 people strong which you helped to set up and you focus on creative britain which includes marketing services tv and film production games and theater what problems do you your clients typically have and how do you help solve them um well there's i mean a, a lot of clients come to us for pretty basic um you know accounting and compliance functions which we're very happy to help them with so we do a lot of, you know, business outsourcing, for example, in our theatre practice um, and, you know, the, the typical things you'd expect from a firm of accountants in terms of com- producing annual accounts and doing audits and dealing with corporation tax. But the real interest for us in the media practice is working with businesses who are ambitious to grow. And most mm-hmm. of our clients are ambitious to grow. Um, and really there... Um, one of the things that underpins all of these businesses, of course, creative people. So we spend a lot of time working with clients on um, employee uh, incentivization, retention, um, and, and, and making sure that they've got the right people in the right places. So there's a lot mm. of time spent looking at um, bonus schemes, share incentive schemes, uh, benefits arrangements and the like. Uh, and we've got an HR consultancy arm that does a lot of work in helping clients with their recruitment policy and personality profiling and um, employee um, engagement surveys and the like. So that's a, a pretty important part of the business. But also, um, it's all about, as I said, it is all about growth. So we spend a, quite a bit of time helping that our clients are set up set up for success, both in terms mm. of their their business structure, but also in terms of um, the processes around um, value proposition, new business function, um, and the like. Um, and very often, so, you know, one of my partners, for example, in the in the production sector, almost acts uh, for his clients as a, as a non-exec, if you like, mm. and there's pretty much no decision they'll take without bouncing it off him first. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a, there's a whole range uh, but it is generally around this this growth growth in people. 
Mm, really fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about growth then, because we're going to have a, a long winding conversation about everything from M&A to the landscape today and sort of COVID-19 yeah. and how that's changed everything. But let's let's talk a little bit about growth um, to start, because your focus, one of your core focuses is marketing services businesses. The people that main people that listen to this show are also marketing services on, and, and agencies as well. From your experience working with creative services and marketing services firms over the years, what are the main reasons that they typically stall or are unable to grow? Is it business structure, as you said? Is it hiring and having the right talent? Is it value proposition? Talk a little bit about some of the most common reasons that your clients and agencies in general struggle to grow. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Nathan. I think there's there's a couple of um, points around this. One is there's the, the stages of growth in a business. So, you know, as let's say three agency founders, you've got a vision for the business, um, you set it up, you're dealing directly with the clients, you're overseeing the quality, you're passionate about the product. Um, and it's it's very tightly controlled because you're touching everything. And there comes a point in the agency's life when um, you've got to go through the sort of the shift to the next stage. And it's typically when you get to about 30 to 40 people mm -hmm. um, and you've got to bring in other people to do some of the things you're doing. You've got to get more involved in management. You've got to uh, put in place the structure and systems to make all of that work and still deliver the same with passion and quality that you as founders want to make sure your clients are getting. Um, so that's an, the first area. And it, it can be difficult for um, founders who've not worked in um, a, you know, an agency that's been set up like that. And that here there's a, there's a sector difference. So quite a lot of designers actually are started by people who come out of art school, started hmm. work, got some clients, started doing creative work and have never worked in another organization so their business sure. has grown very organically so for them it's perhaps a little bit more of a step change than a typical agency founder who's come out of a bigger agency wants to set up their own business because they can see a better way but has experienced the formality of the structure in in a larger organization so they kind of know what they're aiming at and you know designers have by definition, they're good at designing stuff, including processes in their own businesses. But it's a slightly more iterative process, um, unless you know they take advice about it or bring in a, a non-exec to help them. Whereas, perhaps for you know somebody who's come out of um, you know one of the WPP agencies or whatever, they'll have come out of a business with process. So that that's one is that this sort of stages of life uh, of a business can cause it to stall, and it's all about seeing it coming, planning ahead and working out what you're doing with. And it's kind of like, you know, filling up a glass. How full do you make the glass, the small glass, before you move into the slightly mm. bigger organisational glass? Um, you know, and I kind of think you want to get your, your first small glass two thirds full and then you go to the bigger glass and start filling that up. Mm. Um rather than go all the way to the top and have a bit of a crisis trying to get across <laughs> to the next glass, right. if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that's a so, great metaphor. <laughs> thank you. So so that's one of, what, one of the things. But then the other, and I find this 
um, a little bit ironic is one of the things, and maybe it's kind of, you know, cobbler's children or the fact that accountants are always late with their own tax returns. Um, <laughs> is, but, that, is that true? <laughs> I'm a, well, I can only speak from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the is is the value proposition and the new business process. And again, I think it comes slightly from this um, this evolution of the business. So when you start the business, you start it with a very clear idea of what your clients want and a way that you're going to approach it um, with innovation and difference and standout. And, and you succeed at that. And then, of course, life moves on. People catch up with you. And if you're not constantly innovating your proposition, checking that it's indeed compelling against the competition um, and then working out exactly who your target client is, what sort of tribe they are uh, and how to reach them in a consistent and sustained way. And I think new business really is um, an attritional process. You just have to keep delivering it day in, day out for it to work. Um, these are the things that um, can cause a business to stall. And, you know, one of the things when we're researching the sector, and we do quite a bit of research across various things, um, you know, often I find us, myself looking at a, a creative business website and thinking, okay, I, 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 you know, I get that you're creative, I get that you're telling a story, but I don't actually understand what you do for a client. Mm. Um, and I think it's that razor sharp focus on the difference that an agency or, or a consultancy will make to a client and their business and why they should be buying you, not someone else, that often needs refreshing. Hmm. There's so much for us to talk about there <laughs> to get into. <laughs> the first thing that I hear you say is the pinch point. So um, 30 to 40 people is one pinch point. What are some of the other pinch points after after 40 people? And what are some of the other structures? How, how else do other agencies struggle when they become, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 people? Um, is the first question. And the second part question, which I'll ask a little bit later after you've answered that, is, is it even imperative to grow? Why do Why is there this obsession and fascination on growth at, at all costs? Why do we have to be a, a hundred man, two hundred man agency. Can't we just be a thirty, you know, twenty to thirty man agency, have a lifestyle business, and happy days? Um, we'll come back to that one a bit later. But w what are some of the other pinch points after thirty to forty people, and and how do you help your clients get over them? Ah, oh, right. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I guess kind of it's once you double that to the sort of. Uh, 75 80 people business mm. um again it's how do you it's and there i think a lot of the challenges are leaving aside the fact that you need to bring in you know senior hr resource in-house um you need to bring in you know finance professionals you probably ought to have um you know a cto of some description uh, particularly these days, um, once you get to that kind of size, whereas when you're 30 or 40, you can you can do that with, you know, perhaps some part time support and some external advisory support from these people. Um, but I think it's about culture and it's finding a way to keep the culture you want 
across um, a larger number of people and which of course all comes back to leadership and communication and so um, talking to people in a more formal way um, or perhaps not formal perhaps a more structured way becomes very important so whereas before you could have the metaphorical arm around the shoulders conversation mm. as you walk past someone in the office it becomes less possible sure um, and you know I think there's a statistic we use in our business that you have to tell um, our teams something five times before they hear it and remember it. <laughs> for the first time, right. <laughs> before they hear it for the first time, yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. And remember the full message as opposed to, oh, I think you said something about... <laughs> <laughs> sure. um, and so how do you do that? Do you... Um, and how do you structure the client service delivery teams? Again, it's quite an interesting question around this. Do you have, you know, verticals of um, disciplines that service a client or do you keep your discipline? So you have client teams, as it were, or do you keep your disciplines together? So you have your strategists sitting with your strategists and your creatives with your creatives. Um, you What's know, the what, right answer? What is that? I don't know what the right answer is. I've seen businesses I was asking you. that make it. I know. I have seen businesses that make it worth work you know both ways um um i think the key is to to really think about what's going to best deliver the quality service to clients and that depends to a large extent on the value proposition so i think there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural changes that um one struggles with and uh, uh, and unique and 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 also um health and well-being of, of people and particularly at the moment you know in these these rather challenging covid times sure uh when we're not even in the office with most of our team um you know making sure that their mental health is okay that they're feeling engaged that um they're not feeling excluded or or troubled by anything you know again these the bigger the organization the more time and effort needs to be spent making sure all of that is right i think Hmm. The other interesting thing that I heard you say was about the value proposition and sort of making sure that you're attracting, I think you said, what what tribe are your clients, mm. which I thought was really fascinating, which goes back to kind of alignment of values, I guess, or alignment of the way that you see the world. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about what some of the best agencies that you've seen do to kind of attract the right tribe of client and, and what do you mean by that um well i guess you know do we want to be maybe questions are around do we want to be working with let's say we're, we're sector specialists let's say we're working with in the technology sector the tech, tech specialists for the sake of argument in pr mm. um do we want to be working with you know the sort of numbers number one two or three um, who've got an established position in each of our verticals within that or are we working with challenger brands who've got smaller budgets that they need to perform with greater agility to you know um, Honda to kill Ford as it were mm -hmm. um, and what are what are the what are the behaviors and the challenges faced by our target audience that we can help them solve is it to get attention and grow scale quickly? Is it to maintain a position of authority? Is it to launch new products? Um, you know, if we if we say that a business is about helping clients 
successfully launch new products and deliver scale, then probably the sort of businesses that would be prospective clients will be early stage PE-backed product-based businesses um, who've got money to spend on marketing um, and for for whom you know we're going to be the best best choice. So I think it's it's understanding what client clients want to achieve, what stage they're at, and how we can help them with that. Because I think it, for me, and I'm sure many people wouldn't agree with me, but for me, it's having the courage to say, actually, we don't do this because we're really good at doing just this. Mm. And the best agencies that you see in your experience are the ones that specialize, are the ones that are maniacally focused on a particular skill set or vertical market or something. They're generally not they're not generalists, they're specialists. Is that is that what yeah. you see? Yeah. 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 So, you know, um an MNC Saatchi, um, they've had some tough times recently, but you know, they're the the uh, their, their, um, sorry, their tagline, which is, um, is it beautiful simplicity of thought? Something like that, isn't it? Um, actually, it's all about clarity. You kind of know what they stand for. And if I could remember the exact line, <laughs> it would be even clearer. Sure, sure. No, that's that's really fascinating. And um, that leads us on to the M&A question. Let's talk a little bit about M&A because... I would imagine that those agencies who have a, a very clear value proposition are the ones that are most attractive to investors uh, and um, an, uh, among another, a, a, a number of other reasons as well. Um, sure. But your, your focus is on M&A and corporate finance. What first attracted you to, to the deal-making side profession to begin with? Well, it was it was a, in a sense it was an opportunistic thing, um, in as much as a number of our clients, um, well, I mean a high proportion, I would say over fifty percent of our clients have an ambition to realise the capital value in their business in some way at some point, um, whether that's a sale to the management team, a sale to a strategic buyer, a sale to a private equity, or a, or a listing, um, and. It seemed to us that there was an opportunity for us to be able to help them. We had a very strong and talented corporate finance team, but um, in perhaps a slightly anal way, we feel that you really need to understand the culture within a marketing services business or a, or a TV and production business or a, a generally a media business and understand the importance of finding the right buyer fit. Because going looping back, Nathan, to the point about you know, people being so important in um, these these types of businesses. Mm. If you can't find the right home, if you like, for your people in your business, then it's a transaction that's possibly not going to work. Mm. And we feel that you need to know the sector and you need to know the cultures of the different buyers um, to really work with clients to know who who's going to be a good fit and who's going to be a less good fit. So... Um, it was about eight years ago now, we took the decision that we really did uh, need to have a, uh, an M&A proposition in the, in the media sector. And so um, I moved across into the corporate finance team 
Um, and we've been working and, you know, as indeed all of the partners in the media practice do, we've worked with a number of clients on sales in terms of dealing with the some of the, the commercial aspects and certainly the accounting and tax technical aspects. Um, so we've kind of we were up to speed with the process, but we'd never led on it. Um, and so I moved across and learned how to lead on that, brought in some talented people and as as very cleverly I brought in people actually much more talented than me hmm. which has marked the success of um, that business and um, you know we've done gosh probably 20 deals of some significance since we set that part of the practice up uh, which is incredibly um, incredibly satisfying as well as a number of other uh, project-based assignments um but yes yeah, so it was it was really because it seemed to us that we could support our clients if you like from startup and we worked with a lot of startups through to you know the 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 sort of realization of their value in the business and the finding the security there for them and their family well give us a lay of the land as it stands today who are the main players investing in the creative services space today especially in light of COVID-19 how has it changed in the last sort of five or six months is it still the same players in the market or have they changed oh it's a very insightful question no it's not the same players in the market um Mm. you know um we we actually we run something called deal tracker which um looks at M&A in the marketing and media sector and um in the first quarter of this year uh, we reported on a whole range of transactions completed by, you know, the major global holding companies, including Dentsu, WPP, Havas and McCann. Um, but in quarter two, there were no UK deals involved hmm. in, uh, involving any of the le- networks. Uh, and, you know, wow. that they're there concentrating now on sorting out their own businesses in the way a whole load of, of private businesses are. Sure. Um, so consultants who were last year and in previous years very active and absolutely still in the market. Mm. Um, in um, early April, EY bought a Swedish design and innovation firm called Doberman, which allowed it to strengthen its capabilities within uh, innovation and customer experience and digital design. In June, PA Consulting bought a San Francisco-based brand strategy product design agency Astro Studios, which had the double bubble of giving PA um, an enhanced presence in San Francisco, but also um, building up its brand strategy uh, credentials. So the consultancies are still very busy. Um, and then there are private private groups who are either owned by the founders with strong balance sheets or um, backed by private equity um, who are very keen to make acquisitions. Uh, Private equity backed investments amounted to half of the deals um, in Q1 Mm. and Q2. Mm. So, you know, there's been a lot of activity there and there's there's kind of two levels that that's happening at. So you've got um, the the private equity buying a founder investment. So one example of that would be Bridgepoint's acquisition of a medical and healthcare communication agency, Fishwack, in April. And then you've got um, other private equity groups 
or other groups backed by private equity making their own acquisitions. So, um, for example, MSQ Partners, it was announced, uh, but it's not yet as that I've heard being completed. MSQ Partners, which is backed by LDC, made a bid for Be Heard Group, which is that listed group set up by Peter mm. Scott. Um, and so that's LDC backing its investment to make a, an acquisition. So you've got those two levels of investment going on. And then, as I say, a number of uh, privately owned businesses with strong balance sheet mm. going, thinking that actually the current environment might present an opportunity to to find somebody who wants to sell them who wouldn't ordinarily be looking for that sort of transaction. Interesting. So <clears throat> private businesses, uh, PE buyers and the consultancies are all very active in Q1 and, and Q2. And is that because, as you said, I guess there are slightly more, I don't want to use the word distressed agencies out there, but agencies that are, uh, it's a good time to go shopping if, you, if, if you've got deep pockets at the moment. <laughs> well, <laughs> <What>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, potentially, it's a bit of both, to be honest with you. Um, so, you know, a lot of the PE-backed groups have got an acquisition strategy, and that's why the PEs put the money into them in the first place. Um, and in a sense, they're a little bit frustrated because there's not enough deal opportunity coming their way because a lot of the um, well-established, well-run uh, private groups that might have been considering selling at the moment have decided not to because they don't see this as a as a particularly strong marketplace to go out to as a seller. But in a sense, it almost is because the appetite amongst the, the private private equity backed acquirers is still there. They still have mm. a strategic shopping list and they're prepared to pay, um, you know, the, the appropriate prices that aren't, if you like, bottom fishing prices. Um, mm. So there is still some opportunity in that, but there's not much happening because, as I say, there's a there's a slight lack of businesses out there on the market looking to sell. Sure. Um, and then you do have, um, you know, a number of groups who see that actually if there is a distressed business that they can help out by giving a safe home to, uh, it'll be a, a cost effective way of adding a skill set or a team or a a client base um, to their existing business in a in a less expensive way than would be the case um, in non-recessionary times. So it's a little bit of both. So you were involved in the sale of MJ Media to Once Upon a Time, the sale of uh, House PR to W Communications and the acquisition of Dare Digital to Oliver Marketing, as we said at the top of the show. Talk a little bit about what the typical sale process looks like from start to finish and, and where does more Kingston Smith tend to get involved? Yeah, well, the sale process start to finish. Actually, let me talk about where we start to get involved first, if I may. Okay. Um, so clients come to us at kind of two stages. Either they've decided that now is the time to go to market and often that's triggered by them having been approached by a potential buyer and they're not sure whether or not they should take the offer or whether they should widen out the process to look at um, some other potential acquirers to make sure they've considered all their options. Um, or they come to us a couple of years out and say, look, we're looking to sell in two years' time, three years' time, um, and we'd just like to know how we should be shaping our business um, for success uh, in that respect. Um, and so 
you know, the typical sale process starts probably at that point when one is trying to put in place all the things we were talking about before, really, having that great value proposition, having a strong team, strength and depth in your succession management team, um, great client relationships, innovation within the business, all those kind of good things. And we can always talk more about that. Mm -hmm. um, but getting the, all of those really sorted out and having gone through some of the infrastructure things again that might have been not put in place as the business has grown historically. Mm. Um, and so then it comes the time to sale. And typically the process is that um, we need to really understand what makes the business tick, what makes it special, um, what its what its uniqueness is, what its magic is. And then we need to think about a list of potential acquirers who will understand that and for whom, if you like, um, the business that wants to sell is the is the missing jigsaw piece in their puzzle. Um, because if you can find a potential acquirer where it's that sort of perfect fit, it tends to be a transaction that works both ways. It tends to be a transaction that brings value to the seller because it's a strategic acquisition as opposed to a nice to have or we could we could pop a bit more PR in. <laughs> if you see what I mean, as opposed mm. to actually, you know, we've got a burning need amongst our clients for um, programmatic marketing. Mm. And here's a programmatic marketing agency that will fill that fill that need. And we can see us being able to take this to all of our clients and enhance our proposition. Sure. You, you know, so it's finding it's finding again, I guess, using the term tribe, it's finding the right tribe of buyers um, where that's going to really work. And then. Um, we work with a client to produce a, an, an information memorandum, which is a selling document. Um, and then we go out and we approach our potential acquirers anonymously. Um, and we have a, an anonymous one pager, which we can follow up a conversation with. And then we move to put in place um, non-disclosure agreements and share the information memorandum and then have meetings with them. And in this sector, um, it's very important to have those meetings and have enough of them. You know, in, in other sectors, you know, let's say it's a manufacturing business, very often the process is that you would send the information memorandum out to interested parties and then you would invite um, indicative offers before you got into having spending any time on meetings. You can't do that in the sector. You absolutely have to spend time having the meetings, working out whether the cultures fit, um, and spend as much time understanding the acquirer's motives and the plans for their business mm. um, as you do, as they do, understanding your motives and your plans for your business. Because at the end of the day, again, it's a people based business. We need to take our people and our clients in there and know what the future holds for them, because, you know, we need to be explain, explaining why it's a good thing to do to everybody to take them with us. Just on the meetings point, it must be much easier getting meetings now with people now that we're not on planes and aeroplanes and, and buses <laughs> and all the like. We can just get on a, on a Zoom call. So that must make things a lot easier from your point of view, getting time with CEOs and founders of these agencies. Uh, yes, it does. Although actually people still seem to be pretty busy with really? Zoom calls. Yeah. So um, it's for Zoom I, fatigue, I think. Oh, yeah, I think so. You can always tell yeah. when you're, you're somebody's last Zoom of the day. 
<laughs> but yeah, it, it it is, and it's logistically easier, but it's still not as good as actually sure. um, being in the same room as someone. There's something about it, isn't there, that that just lets you kind of feel their body language. So, so you talked earlier about the importance of knowing the investors' motivations. Um, mm. let, let's talk a little bit about that. How do you make sure that your investors are patient capital? That, that you know, there's been a lot of discussion about shareholder value and focusing on the next quarter instead of the next decade. How do how do sellers make sure that they're attracting and working with, or how do you make sure that yeah. you're attracting and working with the right investors to be owners um, of their companies and not just looking to make a fast pound or yen or yes dollar yeah exactly (laughs) exactly well we do a lot of due diligence on the potential buyers i mean not least as the at the first level to check that they're going to have the resources to pay for pay for the business we're selling that's important yeah that's kind of step one um (laughs) but um step but but you know in and around that that absolutely so if we're looking at some of the you know the global groups then it's understanding how they see our client fitting in with their strategy, what their strategy for that part of the business is going forward and the timescales around that, um, what they're looking for from an acquisition uh, and um, really understanding that. And and a lot of the the pre-conversation, there's a lot of back-channel conversations that happen around uh, an acquisition between us and the buyers while the client is talking some of the more detailed logistics we can ask perhaps some of the gloves off questions without anybody taking offense anywhere um so that's really important and you know i'll give you one example we were we were working on what are some of the gloves off questions sorry I, i just i missed that could you give us an example of what some of those questions could be um well you can say, you know, do you have any reserve? You can say to the head of acquisitions or whoever it is you're talking to, what reservations do you have about this um, acquisition? And they might say, well, um, we're very excited about this, that, and the other, but that guy Nathan is incredibly disruptive, and we're worried about the effect he's going to have on our business when we bring him in. I guess you're talking about another. Nathan, yeah, can't be. I just, I just, I just <laughs> sure. used that to be provocative. <laughs> you, so, you, got yes. a, you got a reaction. Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, or it might be, you know, we're really worried that you're not going to be able to bring the management team with you. We, sure. So we feel we need to meet the management team, even though we've met the founders, um, because, you know, we've had some, I don't know, we've looked at your glass door score and it's not sure. brilliant. Right. Um, so, and we can resolve those to the extent that that's possible and educate the, the acquirer about them. Uh, but we also can say to the acquirer, look, you know, uh, is this a nice to have or a must have from your point of view? Mm. Um, seriously, how do you see it fitting in? I mean, on a transaction we were working on recently that unfortunately stalled um, around about the 17th of March. Uh, due to a change in policy by the buyer, which was not to buy anything during COVID, um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about whether they acquired this, our client as a standalone business uh, to sit next to its other subsidiaries or whether they acquired our client as uh, within 
one of the existing businesses because there was um, because it would be better for our client to have some senior management team support around that. Um, so you can, you know, you can, it's understanding what their plans for the business are, how they fit with the needs of the business you're selling. Uh, you know, inevitably, I, partly, I guess your question is around private equity, because of course, as we all know, most private equity firms, not all, but most tend to um, want to realise their assets within three or four years. Sure. So they're always going to, they're always going to turn, turn over. So you know that if you're a headline acquisition by a P, you're going to be back on the market mm. in, in a period of time. But if you're actually being bought by a group that is backed by private equity, then in a sense, it's less um, disruptive because the ultimate owner may change, but you're still part of the same group. And presumably the new owner is as happy with the strategic direction going forward, although they wouldn't have bought it. Makes makes a lot of sense. L let's talk a little bit about the landscape of creative Britain at the moment, especially during COVID-19. TV, films and games must be doing really well at the moment with so many of us at home and a captive audience. But theatre and production, um, I guess they must be having a harder time right now. People don't really want to be surrounded in a room of hundreds or thousands of other people. What what's the prognosis for theatre at the moment, and and how is how are they responding? Well, it, I mean, clearly it's difficult at the moment for theatres to make the economics work. You know, while social distancing remains in place uh, at one meter plus distancing, I think most theatres can only operate at about thirty to thirty five percent capacity, um, and most producers will generally look for around sixty five to seventy percent to break even. So there's the problem. Mm. Um, and there are concerns, of course, about whether an audience is ready to return and, and the risk of investing in new productions. You know, it's a whole chunk of risk to put on a new production in the first place. And this has just multiplied that risk. Um, but, you know, producers and theatres, like all of the creative industries, really, are bringing their creativity to it and tackling the challenge in, the challenge in different ways. I think for theatres, my uh, partner who looks after the theatre practice tells me, there's kind of two main routes. One is reworking existing productions to meet the requirements. So for example, Regent's Park Open Air Theatre opened on Friday with a distanced version of Jesus Christ Superstar. Hmm. Uh, and the Mousetrap is due to reopen in October. Hmm. Um, or they're developing new works with the restrictions in mind. So we'll see smaller casts and clever stagings where a smaller audience suits a more intimate piece. And there the National Theatre so theatre is reopening in October with a one-man play so clearly the the production costs are much less and you can get closer to breaking even with a much smaller audience um good thing about this just to say that though is that the ticket sales for these productions which have opened um are encouraging so there's an audience who want to get back into the theatre mm. um but whether or not it's an audience that's gonna you know keep a, a big production West End musical afloat yet, I think is in some doubt. Hmm. We, we had a really interesting conversation in the pre-interview a couple of weeks ago about this being a great opportunity for certain types of creative businesses. I mean, this is not the first economic downturn that we've had. It definitely won't be the last one. Hmm. Um, what can creative businesses learn from previous recessions 
that will help them through this one. And talk a little bit about some of the other examples of maybe other agencies who have thrived and have used previous recessions and downturns to their advantage. Yeah, I... (laughs) Every recession in in um, the advertising world historically created a new wave of advertising. I've, I've forgotten the number of the waves we're on now, but BBH started up in one of the waves. Adam and Eve started up in, um, gosh, what year was that? 1987. Uh, sorry, 2008. Was it? No. I oh, know, Adam and Eve. 2008, um, sorry. Adam and Eve. 2000, yeah, 2000. Adam and Eve started in 2008 yeah, in the teeth of recession. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what what is it that drives these new startups? It's because they're in, I mean, in sure, in part, some of it is because people get made redundant and one of the alternatives to getting a job is starting your own business. But actually, that certainly wasn't the case with Adam and Eve. Um, <laughs> indeed, because they were working... Uh, in WPP and indeed were pursued by Sir Martin Sorrell for um, for allegedly taking clients away. Um, But people recognise that there's a time for change and sometimes it can be difficult to change these big super tankers that they're working for around and so they leave to set up a business that reflects what they see clients need now. So it's that spirit of innovation and being able to pivot with agility. And one of the easiest ways to do that is just to start from scratch. Um, But, you know, we've also seen um, agencies um, picking up and and changing their focus and being creative. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting to note, isn't it, that uh, James Murphy and David Golding, who were the two of the founders of Adam and Eve, have now, in the teeth of another recession, set up new commercial arts. So, Hmm. um, you know, we've got another wave. We've got another range of uh, businesses with with a different take on it. I feel sure new commercial arts will not be the only one. Um, And we'll see another, another, another wave of new creative agencies with a new proposition they won't all be the same, of course, but mm. um, dealing with what they think, addressing what they think clients' needs are in the current and future. Really, really fascinating. L- let's talk a little bit about uh, diversity and inclusion before we end, end the conversation uh, and get into our favourite questions that we ask all of our guests. The accounting profession is one of the less diverse sectors in our economy. Uh, the profession has really tried to address uh, the issue within recent years of women and minorities, but we're not really seeing the progress that we'd like to see in the, uh, and that we're seeing potentially in, in other sectors. What seems to be the problem in accounting, especially in some of the largest uh, accounting practices out there, and, and what are some of the things that are being done? Yeah, it's a great question. It's very topical. I I, uh, I have to say I can't resist uh, the chance to make the point that more Kingston Smith is the most gender diverse accounting practice in the top 20. Um, And I, I attribute that and we're, you know, we're working hard on the full diversity picture. Uh, We're not there yet, but we're very conscious of the need to, to do so. Um, For me, I think it is, it's about 
it is undoubtedly about attitudes. It's undoubtedly about um, unspoken discrimination, hmm. um, which exists, I think, everywhere. Um, but if I look at what I think has worked for us is we've got a lot of um, women partners. So we've got a lot of representation of women amongst the leadership team in the business. And I think that in and of itself helps um, encourage the, the women in our business to see that they can um, they can succeed and they can succeed in many different formats. So there's not just one woman who's got a particular way with her. There are many of us who are partners mm. in the business um, who have got each got our own funny little ways. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so you don't, you don't have to conform to do it. You can be yourself oh. and be talented and do it. And, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, we're, we were lucky because we had a, you know, quite a high proportion of women in the partnership and that has you know, sort of created its own virtuous circle. Um, you know, what we're doing now is is making sure that we can move towards creating that diversity, you know, across everything, ethnicity, disability, mm. um, and, so, and 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 um, social inclusion as well, actually. Mm. So one of the things we work quite hard at is, is recruiting from, uh, where we take on both school leavers and graduates, is recruiting from... Um, schools in you know um, less advantaged areas to sure. make sure that we're we're trying to build that diversity of thought because it's you know there are countless case studies obviously I'm going to completely fail to remember one to mention now but there are countless case studies that show that true diversity of thought um, is of immense benefit to any business and organisation um, and. You know, so it's a it's the right thing to do, but b it's you know there's a business case. there's a business case for doing it as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think it's interesting what you say around having a number of women in the organisation because the pressure isn't on one woman yeah. to represent all women, and I think that's the challenge with a lot of diversity. Actually, the the individual uh, is sort of taking as the representative of their uh their group um yeah. that's um that's that's really unfair so it's 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 great that you've got that gender diversity within within the practice just just on what differentiates more kingston smith actually aside from the diversity um point that you mentioned there are other accountancy practices in the market i'm not naming any names they exist um what makes more kingston smith different special stand out um, that's a great question, and thank you for asking it. Um, I think, for me, um, it's to do with our focus on working with uh, SME, entrepreneurial businesses, owner-managed businesses. Um, we're absolutely geared to work up, work geared up to work with them. We have a throughout the practice, we have a strong sector-led focus. I happen to sit in the media sector. And so, for example, for media clients, every one of the hundred of us has got experience of working with their sort of business. So we don't take time to kind of get up the curve of understanding. Um, and we can see best practice and share it 
um, across our client base without obviously breaching any particular confidentiality. Um, and the other thing I think that I'm very proud that makes us different is we've worked hard over the last five years of merging strategic growth advisory skills across our general practice partners. So we've all been trained on and can use tools to help uh, businesses grow at every stage. So we look at, for example, value propositions, uh, strategy implementation issues, um, uh, employee incentive structured planning. So the whole range of things, toolkits that we can bring to bear um, as part of our advice. Hmm. Really, really fascinating. I, I know that I've only got a few more minutes with you, Mandy, so let's get into everyone's favourite questions. <laughs> these, <laughs> these are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well. Um, I don't think you know what these are. I'm going to choose some of them at random and, and fire okay. them at you. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, it's difficult to pick amongst the many failures, the <laughs> ones that provided the biggest learning. Um, I guess... I guess one of one of my bigger failures, and I can't disclose any of the circumstances, but I was I was putting in place an employee incentives planning program, and I made it far 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 too complicated, and it didn't work largely because nobody understood what on earth was happening. <laughs> um, and you know, beautiful simplicity of thought. Yeah, I think that's what Saatchi said actually. Um, you know, keep things simple, keep mm. things simple enough so that everybody can understand it. And I think there's a real art in distilling complex stuff down into simple yeah. messages. Um, and I think that's just one of the most important things I've ever learned, actually. Yeah. Einstein said, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Yes. Uh, perfect. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced your approach to accountancy, to M&A and the world of creative services? Well, actually, the mentor I have to mention is a gentleman called Bob Willett. So he was the person who invited me to um, come and set up with him the media practice, me and another uh, guy we used to work with, chap called Graham Golding, to come and set up the media practice at Moore Kingston Smith. Uh, and I'd worked for Bob, who'd run the media practice at a previous firm. And um, he was, oh, he still is a, a lovely man. He's now retired. His attention to detail and passion for quality and delivery um, and a forensic approach to um, technical excellence mm. was a tremendous combination. He was um, at one he was one of the founding editors at uh, Accountancy Age and one of the um, uh, was involved in publishing at um, Haymarket as well as at one point being at the on the technical committee of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. So you can, wow. fuse, you can see fusing those two skills. Sure. He was incredibly supportive, incredibly challenging, yeah. and I learned a huge amount from him over the years. Amazing. Um, and, yeah, so I would have to say it's that guy. Fantastic. Tell us about some of your favourite books. What do you read for personal professional development? What books do you tend to go back to time and time again? Tell us some of your favourite books. Yeah, well, I mean, 
that's a great question and again it's one that obviously is going to test my memory but one of the I mean one of the ones that made a big impression on me that I've read relatively recently is The Speed of Trust um, which okay. is Stephen M. Stephen Covey yeah, yeah and Rebecca Merrill and The Speed of Trust is great because it's all about how establishing authority as a, as a, a trusting relationship with your colleagues leads to better quicker decisions because instead of having to argue the toss and everything um whilst you still have to explain it you know you can get to decisions much more quickly and and of course in that book he talks about how to do that and i think that also draws a little bit um on one of my other favorite books which is radical candor by kim scott okay I've heard about it. I've not read it. Yeah, it's great. It's all about um, caring deeply and challenging directly. Now, she's one of these West Coast execs Mm. um, who kind of grew up working for slightly crazy bosses. Okay. um, But was encouraged to argue the hell with them if she, to challenge everything they said. So they were always testing their their arguments Mm. by making the people who work for them challenge them. Um, and you know her and I think it I think for all of us and and I think it I I also think this comes out into life you know if we see stuff that we think is not right we should not let it pass we should Mm. care about it and we should care about the people was challenging but we should challenge them and we should do that in the business and outside of the business so Mm. I think that's a great book and then the third one I just have to give a um uh a shout out to is Bounce by Matthew Syed. Okay. Uh, because that's all about, um, it's about practicing, practicing deliberately and relentlessly. Mm. And I think that's what makes a great entrepreneur is that you just keep going like the Duracell bunny. You know, things may knock you sideways, but you keep going and you do it until you do it right. Mm. Um, and this book is all about how excellence comes from you know, just keeping practicing the stuff that you want to get right. Mm, really interesting. Um, Speed of Trust, Radical Candor and and Bounce, all on my uh, really long Amazon reading list. I don't think I'm ever, <laughs> I'm ever going to get to the bottom of that reading list, but uh, but thank you for the suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? Um, oh, I do far, I do, I do lots. I do running, I do cycling, I do weights, I do horse riding. Wow. Wow. Um, I, I'm learning golf. I'm learning, well, no, thank you very much. I'm learning golf and that I have to tell you is messing with my head. Um, why? Because it's really difficult game. It's a, the you know, hardest it's a, game in the world, actually. It's crazily invented. It's a yeah, tiny ball, a long back with a tiny head. <laughs> and it's, it's. Who, who would have invented such a thing? Like, why? It's just yeah. to make people angry. I yeah. blame the Scots. I like that Robin Williams <laughs> sketch about it. <laughs> oh, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I'll have to Google oh. it. Yeah, yeah, I'll do. Like... do. Um, Amazon Prime or Netflix or Disney Plus or HBO. There's so many these days. What are you watching and streaming today that's good? Well, um, actually, I was laughing a lot last night at the second series of sex education which is on netflix okay um it's very very funny um kind of rite of passage program Mm. and my 
20-something children came in and saw my husband and me watching this and left them hurriedly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because there are some things you just can't do. No. Um, so no. that was great. I, re- I really enjoyed um, Mrs. America. Okay, not heard of it. What's what's? Oh, it it's a super. It's um, I think that is on Netflix. Um, but it's it's set in the it's sort of seventies through to eighties, mm. back in you know when um, they were the. The feminists were trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution of America, which, by the way, has still not been passed. The what? last state voted for it last year. Right. And then it went to Congress and got passed, and it went to the upper house and got rejected. Anyway, Mrs. America is set in the 70s and 80s, back in the day right. when the, the feminist movement was... Um, starting this off and Kate Blanchett does a tour de force performance as Phyllis Schlafel who's the right-wing Republican woman who opposes it it's great okay I'm, I'm looking for a new show so I will I'll check that out thank you very much okay. um what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who comes to you and says that they want to start their career in a top accounting firm um, my main advice would be started at more Kingston Smith because we'll give you a really, really rounded training. I hope you're ready for the influx of CVs that you're about to have now. <laughs> <laughs> You've brought that on yourself. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> um, and my final question, Mandy, what is it you know about the world of media and M&A today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career in 1991? Oh, wow. Um Actually, just how much hard work it takes to get to success, because it would have managed my expectations a little better, I think. Hmm. Love that. Great place to end. Mandy, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's been great chatting. We have been speaking with Mandy Merrin. She is currently a partner at Moore Kingston Smith. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 91 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales, marketing, and media professionals. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.